With deforestation at an all-time high, climate temperatures causing shifts in our global ecology, and the grim reality of species going extinct every day, it can be easy to be a pessimist in today's world. Although, as science progresses, so does our understanding of how the world works. Technology improves at an exponential rate, meaning there are more ways to solve Earth's vast array of problems than ever before. Since soil is the foundation to growing the food we eat, it makes sense that we figure out a way to improve our care and maintenance of the rare minerals and microorganisms that are powering our crops. This is where the team from Kiss the Ground comes in. Kiss the Ground teaches us how through the incredible power of regenerative agriculture we can heal damaged soil. I first met Finney and Makepeace at the Planet Home event in San Francisco. He was giving tours detailing that through a relatively unknown farming practice known as regenerative farming, we can reverse global trends of climate change. His organization Kiss the Ground spreads awareness through inspiring the population and engaging in open source content and resources about soil and regenerative agriculture. They are also heavily focused on making a tangible impact on the land and within our communities through their farmland and leadership programs. The organization touts that whether you are a business owner, parent, student, chef, farmer, rancher, policymaker, or a concerned citizen, your participation in healing our soil matters, and Kiss the Ground is dedicated to showing us what's possible and providing the support to get there. I absolutely love this conversation with Finian and learned so much. I'm very excited for you guys to tune into this one. In this episode, we discuss the incredible power of regenerative agriculture and healing damaged soil, how to reverse global trends of climate change, how to become a pro-soil advocate, and a detailed overview of how sustainable agriculture works. As always, you can watch this podcast with Finian and I live on YouTube. And without further ado, episode 74 with Finian Makepeace. Let's jump into it. Boom, and we're live. Finian, how are you doing, my man? I'm really good. How are you? It's been a while since I, I've last seen you, and I'm doing fantastic, and I've been so fired up to finally get you on the podcast. The lessons that you taught me during that program we did at the Planet Home Conference was amazing. I never looked at soil the same since. It's mm. constantly been on my mind, and I'm really excited not only for selfishly for a recap sort of of what we learned there, but yeah. for our audience to learn just what's going on in the world right now, how you know, we can help by understanding what soil regeneration really is, because I know a lot of people don't know it. So first off, man, congratulations on everything you've done with your nonprofit, Kiss the Ground. It's truly amazing. Thank you so much. And I think that's a, it's a, great, uh, it's a great way to start, because what you're talking about is, is very similar to the epiphanies that uh, myself and the other founder had right in the beginning uh, and then have happened over time that we've been involved in this. And it's, it's really, you know, we call them aha moments, but they're so much bigger than that. They, they really shift how you see the world completely. And that's really uh, what a lot of our goals at Kiss the Ground have been is to say, you know, there are, there are pioneering farmers and scientists who've discovered this stuff. There's ancient, ancient wisdom that has known this stuff. Our current culture has, is, is kind of locked in this mechanical mind that's forgotten a lot of this stuff and hasn't even been paying attention to it uh, for the, the limitations of our perspective. And this opportunity to help create ways that people, regular folks, just like you and I, 
who might not be attached to these concepts can get it. And that you, you, you witnessed one experience, highly experiential version of it, which was walking through the Planet Home uh, event where we were showing people really, okay, soil, this is the deal that is happening on our planet and this is how much we've destroyed it and this is what that means. So what are the impacts of degraded, uh, desertified, destroyed, unfunctioning soil? And then being able to see what happens and this tri transformation that occurs when we start to work with the land to rebuild its original function and all of a sudden these miraculous things and these these solutions that are, are almost outside of most uh, most politicians, most government officials scope of what's possible occur. So we'll get into that, but it's it's really, my job out there in the world right now is how can I help to shift the minds of thought leaders, emerging leaders, existing leaders, and people who are ready to take charge in this and help them get this as much as I've gotten it. Cause I didn't know, you know, I hadn't, I had no idea either. So it's a really exciting time. Yeah. How, where's your background with this stuff? Because you, when you speak about it, you speak about the soils, like your kid, right? Like you are so passionate about it. And that's something that I don't know if you're born with or like, where did you come into this true love for, for the soil and for the earth? Great question. Um, well, first I'll start with the, the kind of the, the science portion of it. Um, I have always been interested in science in terms of the biology, biological side. Terrible student of chemistry when I was in high school, you know, but always fascinated with biology. And I had, I was really lucky to have a, an amazing biology teacher who I actually got for ninth grade, 11th grade and 12th grade, the same amazing biology teacher. And I, I come from upstate New York, Ithaca. Uh, oh, I'm from or, Albany. All right, cool. Um, my parents, that's where my parents are from. Um, and so Cornell University is in Ithaca. And one of the, the cool situations that happened that could be considered a priming moment for me was uh, all of biology, learning photosynthesis. <clears throat> so miraculous to me that these, these organisms were, were involved in doing this and the, the, what's happening inside of a leaf. Like that stuff's just bonkers anyway. But um, when I was in 12th grade, Cornell University was doing a study uh, that was a pretty breakthrough study. They were figuring out that mycorrhizal fungi, which we study a lot and love so much in soil science, mycorrhizal fungi were what was actually protecting oak groves from airborne viruses. Now, what, was, what I was out there doing is just taking soil samples, but we were learning this stuff kind of on the on the just general level of it, but that study was showing that an airborne virus could happen to one grove of trees. And then I think like five or six miles apart, uh, trees or, or, or a grove of oaks could be warned to get ready for this virus. And they would basically, they were confused on how and it turned out it was the mycorrhizal fungi sending these signals to the oak grove so far away to get them ready to have their antidote ready. So that kind of thing, um, the level and the depth I went in my biological learning. And so I, it was more than just a high school biology experience that I had and the fascination I had with it was pretty, pretty robust too. So, um, that being said on the, on the scientific side, I, uh, I have that kind of 
existing awareness built in. So when I heard about this and watched a four hour presentation by Graham Sait, who's a, an amazing soil expert from New Zealand, when I watched that four hour talk of his, these big aha moments, you know, were particularly ringing in my head of like, oh my God, it's all clicking together. So, you know, there's several people in that audience, but for me, I think I was, had a heightened level of priming to be ready to hear it, get it, have the synopsis connect of, holy sh this is a big deal. In fact, this is the biggest deal that, that no one's talking about. And I had that moment for me was, if I didn't know, and I considered myself environmentally and scientifically aware, uh, you know, just to put numbers on, like in the 95th percentile of people who knew what was happening with climate change and, and what the world was dealing with. And I was like, if I didn't have any idea about this whole soil thing, probably most people don't know. And that was the same as other co-founder Ryland. He was like, you know, I'm in the organic food business. I had never heard about this soil thing at all. Like for both of us from different walks of, of, of uh, environmentalism, we were both like, if we didn't know, probably a lot of people don't know. And then we started asking people, nobody knew. Al Gore didn't even know really. Like in, in the last seven years, some really amazing shifts have changed. And, and part of that is because this, a lot of the science is relatively new and humans have been locked in a mechanical thinking for a long time since uh, European domination of the globe happened some years ago. Yeah, it seems what's cool is that you're tackling this, this deep root cause behind a lot of the, the issues that people are well aware of. Climate change is overall pretty well received now by especially you know millennials and and under in general, but a lot of people uh, still don't know exactly how to, to fix the specifics. And there's so much information out there today, some accurate, some false. Uh, the soil regeneration topic is just the first time I ever even heard that inside of the community. This is something that isn't being talked about enough, but yet is such a big piece of the puzzle. So I'd love to kind of go through a little bit about maybe an overview of what exactly is yeah. soil regeneration, and then we can dive deeper. Great. So the, the way we teach about it in soil advocate training, we do a course uh, for people who are ready to take the next step. And, That's and so cool. You guys do that. That's so yeah, cool. Really, we're in one right now. It's going so well. We have uh, about 240 students from all over the 260 students, sorry, from all over the country, all over the world. We had, um, I think we have like 16 different countries represented right now. Um, but basically, the easiest way I see to start off someone in the conversation is this little trick just saying, you know, where does a tree come from? A tree comes from another tree. Like a seed, right? Most people yeah. are like a seed. And you'd be like, well, where does this mass and structure come from? Most people would be like, well, it's the ground. Because roots are like pulling up stuff. And you're like, okay, right. Well, wouldn't there be billions of holes all over the earth if trees came from the ground? That would make, that would be accurate. Right. So everywhere there's a plant or a tree, there'd actually be like holes and we'd be in a reductive situation. So the question then becomes, where does it come from? And the, the big, easy and um, thought shifting phrase I use, and it's to really bend people's perspective is trees come out of thin air so that when we're conceiving of the mass of a tree, the structural element, 
when we're perceiving that as coming from what we would call nothingness, you know, this air stuff that we refer to as nothing, that the entire mass and structure came from the tree. Now a tree is only 50% carbon, but its structural components are formed by carbon, carbon chains. Because a lot of it's water, what you dehydrate it, it's 50% carbon based. So when we grasp that, that the, the structure of the tree or the structure of a plant came from thin air because carbon, that's in carbon dioxide, carbon into oxygen molecules, when the plant sucks in that carbon dioxide into its leaves and its stomata, inside the chloroplast, using sun energy, it breaks apart those carbo carbon dioxides and connects the carbon with hydrogen and water that the plant pulled up from its roots. It creates carbohydrate chains. These become liquid sugars. You know how if you, you know, break a plant or you tap a tree, sap comes out? Mm -hmm. That's the liquid sugar that's made of carbon. It's carbohydrates, liquid sugar that's flowing through the tree. And the tree's actually feeding itself to do things, keep its maintenance, and it's also building itself. So the building blocks of life, we've all heard our carbon is the building block of life, right? You've heard that? Correct. So when we say, okay, now we're understanding that the, the plant is pulling in carbon from the air, carbon dioxide, and creating itself out of these carbon chains, right? We got that? Yep. Now we're saying, okay, well, where does soil come from? So what most of our textbooks will say soil comes from is, let's say this is a hillside. You know, we have sand, silt, and clay kind of eroding from weathering and falling to the, the valley and accumulating, right? So that's our sand, silt, and clay. That's the majority of the mass of what makes up our soil anyway is this sand, silt, and clay stuff, right? Then what a lot of our textbooks are teaching us is things die and decompose and mix with that sand, silt, and clay and create soil, right? Makes total sense. And it's true. But we miss the big thing. And this is what's so big and why this conversation is so new and exciting is because underneath the surface, all of this area, something amazing is happening. The roots of the plant are sharing. They're leaking out. So pretend my fingers are the roots. They're dripping out liquid carbohydrates. 30 to 40% of the liquid carbohydrates that they make, they're leaking out of their roots. So this is the big reason why everyone's so excited about soil regeneration is because the plants are leaking it out. Like why would they give away all that free sugar? Why wouldn't they use it to build themselves? Well, in exchange, they are feeding this liquid sugar out, life likes sugar, all of these uh, microbiology, like fungi and bacteria, are surrounding the root and consuming that sugar. And in the process, they're harvesting and making available minerals in that soil substrate. So their life and death cycles are creating nutrient available or, or nutrients to be available, plants available. So they're actually using their enzymes. They're digesting the soil right around the root and making that available for the plant. So that's why the plant's feeding them so much. But here's the other cool thing. The fungi that are connected to the plant that reach out and they're all in their hyphae going out there, they're pumping minerals back to the plant. The bacteria right around the, the plant root are right there. The life and death cycles of those things and their bodies are designed to be sticky, 
gluey, stringy substances that aggregate soil together. Think about a piece of tape, double-sided tape or whatever. You make it into a ball, right? And you throw it into a sandbox, you get this kind of weird shaped thing with lots of sand particles on it. And what you get is a lot of air and water space too, right? So nature has designed these bacteria and fungi and other organisms to create these glues that glue soil together in these condo-like structures that life can live, water can infiltrate, air can be held. So an aggregate, a, a humus aggregate, for example, holding 20 times its weight in water, that's a super sponge. So these things are designed by nature, 500 million years of research and development, we say. So here's the last part of it. Those things are made of carbon. So this story of plants pumping in sugar to feed the microbes who are creating aggregated sponges that are made of carbon, these little mini condos under the ground, that's the carbon pump and the carbon storage component that we forgot about and didn't really understand because the leaves that fall to the surface here and decompose, 80%, 70%, most of that is going to decompose within a very short period of time and turn back into CO2. The stuff that gets stored for longer in those aggregates and humus, that's the stuff that really builds soil down. You can have your soil profile grow down at a very quick rate. That's the basic lesson of how carbon is pumped in the soil and how soil is built and can be built very quickly. Is there a level of how much soil can be built? Like a certain, is it a hundred feet, a mile? Like how much soil can exist under any particular tree? Um, that's a great question. The plains of the United States, um, I like to be on the conservative side. There were places that were over 10 feet of what we would consider topsoil humus um, and or, or a horizon, O horizon area. So that's pretty phenomenal. So at, at measurements of eight to 10 feet, no problem. Some people argue much higher, but I, I tend to just go with that figure. But yes, I mean, in terms of how much we can build back, and now, you know, in the middle of this country, we created the Dust Bowl. So you can imagine we shrunk that all the way down and took out all the organic matter. Organic matter is 50% carbon. So we essentially depleted the carbon stocks in the soils of the United States uh, significantly. And it happened in the Middle East and anywhere else in the world where there's deserts. Uh, you had humans basically take fertile land that had carbon in the soil and the carbon soil sponge and deplete it and turn it into sand. Almost every desert was a human generated desert across the world. Yeah, that's interesting. In terms of the origin of soil regeneration, you said that all these textbooks are are teaching one thing and they're kind of leaving out this particular detail. And you said that this is a new discovery that's absolutely fascinating. At what point, when did this first get brought into light totally arguable in terms of the timeline i mean there are studies i think earlier in 18 whatever is where people were figuring out that this is a phenomenon like even the study what i was you know where does a tree come from there was a study i forget the date of it but the person who figured out that trees don't come from the soil he did a whole measurement of like well the tree grew three feet tall and the soil only lost this much of its mass so the tree must have not come from the soil like that was ages ago Uh, but particularly the science around proving 
some of these amazing features that are happening in the soil, like the production of something called glomalin, for example, which is, remember I just described the root tip here, the fungi strands that connect like IVs to the, to the root themselves. Each of those strands have a sticky protein called glomalin that protects them. And this is a mega protein that's very hard to digest. So it stays in the soil for a long time storing carbon. And it also, it's like the super aggregator of the soil. So those discoveries weren't until 1996, like substances in the soil that we didn't know what they were turning out to be the most uh, fundamental and important and critical part of restructuring, rebuilding soil. I remember, I think it was stage like two, it was early on in your presentation, you showed kind of this dry land. It was sort of to mimic a desert. And you were teaching there how with this soil, with this land, you can then regenerate it from start to finish. Can you talk about that process now that we have a baseline understanding of the whole how it all works, what happens when you take a desert and how can you regenerate that desert from, from starting as a, as a desert? Great question. So uh, I would say starting from as a desert, it is definitely pr pr particularly hard. If, if you're not at full desert yet, far, far easier. And this is, this is something I'd like to set up. And we've kind of jumped around here, so hopefully people can follow, but we haven't really gone in any kind of story structure here, but um, this is a word I'm gonna put out there, conditions. Probably everyone watching your podcast has watched some kind of National Geographic video or some kind of video that shows what happens after a rain, right? Right. All of a sudden, everything starts turning green, grasses come from what was the desert, right? All the birds come in, the zebras yeah, come running. Come back and it's like, oh wow, cool. Regeneration just happened. And we look at like, oh, it was the dry season and the wet season comes. Okay, cool. So we got that, right? Conditions mean life. So if, if the conditions have enough water and oxygen and things to work, you have life, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in a, in a full desert, the problem is you've lost most of, or at least a significant amount of on the top layer of soil, you've lost your seed bank, your latent seed bank has eroded and washed away. So when a rain comes or when something happens, even good conditions of that top layer of sand being wet, it may not have the, uh, the amount of uh, seeds in it that doesn't matter if it gets wet. But in a, in a condition where something hasn't gone full, full desert, where you have just degraded land, right below the surface, even if it's compacted at the top, right below the surface, you can have seeds that are waiting. So if you have enough per percolation or infiltration of the water, you can give the conditions so that plants come back. Now, to describe degraded soil, if my hand is degraded soil here, thinking about it caps itself off and actually gets very hard to penetrate with water. So water hits it, and water actually, those, those bombs of, of water droplets are actually creating more dispersed state soil and even a harder thing to penetrate. So that actually can have more erosion and runoff and less infiltration, which makes the cycle perpetuate. Now, if we look at how to rehabilitate places, one of the fastest ways is without major, major human intervention is using animals, okay? 
So think about taking a large herd of animals into a place that has capped off, uh, uh, what do you call it? The soil is capped off because all the rain droplets broke the aggregates and it's basically like sealed off. Does that make sense? Sealed yeah. off surface. So now it rains, it just it runs off even more. So you bring a group of cattle and you herd them tight together. You bring them into an area, even if there's not a lot of food there for them, their hoof prints have evolved to make these awesome little uh, holes that act as dams or act as little reservoirs that penetrate down, right? And if they're eating something, they can drop things into that little hole, right? So they make these little pockets into, if, if there's some ability for their for hooks to go in. So then what can happen is their dung and their urine also are fertilizers. So you go into an area and all of a sudden those holes exist. So now when it rains, there's water stopping and being forced into one of these little holes and that will create conditions where less runoff will happen, more infiltration will happen and the potential to, to allow for something in the latent seed bank to sprout back up during that time. Also underneath the poop of a cow or in a place where urine, you're giving nutrients that weren't available in the soil because the soil was so depleted that will be able to regenerate it. So looking at that natural effect of herded animals that used to be in most of the great plains of, of any part of the world, really, you're looking at a condition being set. So you're setting up for better conditions when it does rain. And all of a sudden you're utilizing that rain better than you were before. So you're maximizing more how much rain can be used. So it's basically strategizing, be like, oh, there's zero, we have zero effective rainfall, which means that within a day, all of it has evaporated or run off. And if we bring these animals in herding properly, we can have much more effective rainfall. So that's something to think about. When we're looking at conditions are what is gonna allow for plants to flourish or not, then we say, okay, how are we making rainfall effective? Okay, now let's switch to another example of a farm. So when you don't have plants in the ground, I'll just use my handy plant here again. If I took off all the plants from the surface, right now when it rains above this plant, the rain hits the plant, slows down, right? And the, the puncturing here of the plant will allow more percolation of the water into the soil. I took it, if I take out all the plants and I just have soil, this soil, all these little aggregates will be busted apart by the raindrops and seal off again, allowing very little infiltration. So that fast pace bombing of the, of the soil with raindrops. So that's essentially packing this down. So when you're looking at farming land, not, not range land for, for raising cattle or something, we're saying how much of the year can you make sure that your land is covered with plants? because two factors are happening there. You're protecting against erosion and runoff and water loss, and you're actually actively pumping carbon in to increase your soil sponge, all those aggregates, right? So when we have living plants, what do we have? Carbon pumping in the ground. What do we have? Protection from wind, water, and sun baking the top, right? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So those two things are really paramount to say, can we have more of our land covered? So the query for everyone is next time you're, you're driving down the road or flying in a plane, look out and see how much bare ground you see. 
bare ground is the antithesis to regenerative agriculture. I don't know what that word means. Can you explain that? Antithesis? Yeah. Oh, it's the, it's the, like, it's the opposite of what, so if regenerative agriculture is building back soil and helping it, bare ground is degenerating it. So regenerative agriculture is trying to regenerate land. Bare ground is one of the biggest things degenerating because we just learned how soil is built is by plants pumping sugar in, right? How soil is protected is plants being there to protect it. If both those things are gone and it's bare soil, we have zero carbon being pumped in to feed the microorganisms and we have zero protection for the topsoil. Got it. So let me know if I... Skin yourself alive and tell me how it feels. How protected from the elements are you? Not very protected. Very interesting. So if I look at a farmland and it's, there's nothing really going on there and the soil looks dead and all of a sudden we get a huge amount of rainfall, you know, you would assume, wow, this is so good for the land. It's, it's getting there. But the reality is because there's no plants there permeating the soil, none of that's really taking, it's, it's not really getting deep into the soil. It's really just hitting that top layer and could seal off. But what you're saying is if we were to somehow able to plant plants, even a weed, for example, in the meantime, it's at least going to continuously take that water and get it deeper into the land. Exactly. So it's think about those things, conditions and effective rainfall. If it rains, here's a great example. There's farms and ranches in Texas. Uh, Hundreds have been measured ranches in Texas. Average infiltration for a half an inch of water Guess how long do you think average for over 100, I think 120 plus ranches that were tested? This much rainfall, how long till it infiltrated? I'm going to guess 30 minutes. An hour. With regenerative ranching and making it so that there's better soil conditions, you can move, or many, many, many times, you've moved from a half an inch of infiltration in an hour, which is almost like concrete infiltration rates, to a half an inch in 10 minutes under 10 seconds wow so if you look at that condition this is where we were we're up against mechanical thinking where people see something and they might measure infiltration rates and they'll say this is this is our condition Uh, we have this much infiltration therefore we have to deal with that runoff and all of that pollution and blah 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 that's just what we have to do so they spend billions of dollars on river cleanup and all this other stuff we have countless cases in regenerative agriculture where a farm has started from heavy rainoff, runoff, heavy runoff and, and erosion to zero runoff, meaning an acre of land with a one inch rainfall is able to absorb 27,000 gallons of water versus allowing it to run off and then much of it to pool and much of it to evaporate. So those are the condition differences when you're able to get under 10 second infiltration rates for half an inch of water. Uh, and a lot of these farms I've been on are, you know, infiltrating an inch in four seconds. It's, it's in immediately. Wow. It's just like instantaneous. And then you see a, a farm right across the fence and it's like 15 minutes. And these are just right across the fences from each other. It's unbelievable. So this is just a really simple tweak that farmers can use to cover crops, no-till cover crops, cover crops, multi-species cover crops the best. Yeah. Well, what about this? You know, a lot throughout my life, I've heard that when you plant something and you continue to plant year after year after year, if you're say planting corn, 
five, 10 years in a row after 10 outputs, eventually it uses up all the minerals and stuff in, inside of the soil, or that at least was my understanding. At what point is it a negative to just be constantly producing crops versus maybe like what you're mentioning, just soil regeneration? Great question. Animals eat different things, right? A robin eats different things than a duck eats different things than a lion eats different things than an otter, right? Right. So plants are the same. So plants have a different appetite and different root depth level, and they have a different exudate, meaning what they're putting into the soil, the sugars they're putting in to feed the microorganisms are different. So they attract different microorganism colonies, which extract and make different minerals available in the soil. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. So now kind of the older thinking of crop rotation. Cool. Think of crop rotation as so 1980s. Just bear with me on that. Right. Okay. Think about something evolving. Crop rotation is great. If for your, for your cash cropping, right? So let's say you're, you're going to sell corn. So you grow corn one year, and I'm going to sell soybeans. So you grow soybeans the next year. And I'm going to do alfalfa and hay that. And I'll do that next year. That's great. That's going to help a lot. But what's even more strategic, if we think about what I just said previously, is when on your off season from your cash crop, planting, let's say 16 or 17 species of, of very differing species of cover crop mix over your winter season, for example, all of those minerals that you lost or have been extracted or used by a certain crop, depending on the diversity of cover crops you have, you can reignite or make available nutrients that have been sort of depleted because the, the source of them is there. The sand, silt, and clay, the rock, whatever it is, that is the original source of those minerals anyway. So if you can activate the biology with all of these different species of cover crop, all of a sudden, um, Gabe Brown has a great line. I'm trying to remember how he says it. He's a famous regenerative farmer, rancher. He says, what a lot of farmers are spending 17 years to get back in their soil from these rotations, moving, blah, blah, blah. He's like, I'm getting in one because he's doing this very diverse set of cover crops, which is putting and making available all of these nutrients uh, because of the different uh, compounds that are released by certain biology being in the soil. It's miraculous. So basically why I say like crop rotation is essential, it's cool for your cash crop, just doing that is still mostly degenerative. Does that make sense? Yeah, but so just moving around, just, just moving around corn to a different plot, boom, 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 boom. It's better than just corn, 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 of course but it's not even nearly as amazing and fast at regenerating as cover cropping with multi-species. So uh, how many crops of corn can I get before I need to um, implement cover crop for that particular year? So could I get like three years and then is there like three years of cover cropping to get it back or is it every year on and off? Well, that's what I said. What Gabe is, is showing after you get your soil health back into relative good condition, he's able to get the, the uh, chemically available nutrients um, that most farmers would take 17 years to get with uh, adding different fertilizer types. He's able to get released in his soil in one year based on his multi-species cover crop mix, which is phenomenal. Don't quote me on those exact numbers because it's somewhere in my head, but 
what we're basically saying is forget the how many times can I do corn before. If we start to say priority number one is my soil health, how much can I create conditions for the best soil? All of a sudden your brain starts shifting towards, well, what did nature design to happen? How much of the year can I mimic at the Olympic athlete level of what nature would be doing in this scenario? Right? So right. you say, okay, now instead of being like, okay, everything's about my corn cash crop, you're saying everything's about soil health. And then when in the right strategic time, I'm going to plant my corn crop and that's going to be my cash crop. But otherwise, everything's about my soil health. Lo and behold, you're saving input cost tremendously. Um, because your input costs go down as your soil structure and soil health and fertility go up. How accurate and how has this changed? Number one, how accurate is soil testing? Like what can we learn just by testing soil and how has that changed over the past 10 to 20 years? Great question. So soil testing can be very accurate. The biggest change has been from, and still, you know, still it's the predominant testing is all around chemical, right? So you can test your, your soil's chemistry and say, okay, we have, this is how much phosphorus we have, this is how much plant available magnesium we have, right, da, 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 da. You're testing that. The biggest new transformation, probably what's going to become the most paramount, arguably, transformation that's going to happen in testing and in uh, awareness and in planning for farmers is moving to biological. So what that means is, for example, with nitrogen, if you're testing what's chemically available in nitrogen in your soils right now, you're going to miss about 30 to 50% of what might be available in your soils. So you just test the chemistry. It says, this is how much nitrogen you have. Now, if you want to grow these crops, you're going to need this much more nitrogen. So this is, that's your equation for how much nitrogen fertilizer you need to buy. Okay, cool. Works for the fertilizer salesperson. <laughs> sort of worked for the farmer more and more it's not because those rates keep going up to produce your same amount of yields. Now, if you measure organically available nitrogen, which means the nitrogen that will be available based on the biology in your soil, usually you're able to see about a 30 to 40, sometimes 50% of what you need for your nitrogen. Does this make sense? So let's say you said, I need 50% more nitrogen than I have in my soils right now. So that means I'm gonna buy this much. If you're able to get an organic available nitrogen test and uh, Haney test, for example, if you wanna write that down, you're able to look and say, well, actually, I only need 20% or 20% of that to help get my yield. So you're able to reduce your nitrogen fertilizer cost by 30%. That's just based off a different test using organic. Yeah. The non-organic? Well, not organic, meaning organically available, meaning like biologically available. Got we'll it. Use organic with the label, but organically available, life biologically available. So that's, a, I just did a little quick guy quote quote for it, but average farm in the United States is 1500 acres. Average testing for that, for that organically available nitrogen and other things come with that too. So it's not the whole thing, but $700 for 1,500 acres. So $700 could save you $22,000 or more on nitrogen cost just by doing the testing to, to be confident that you actually don't need as much nitrogen as the nitrogen salesperson is telling you. 
So we understanding this There's knowledge. The last, that, the last thing on that is every year that your soil biology goes up, the availability of nitrogen being created goes up as well if you do it properly. So you actually, you're on that curve of less inputs, less inputs, less inputs. So taking all that into account and taking into current farming practices, how many of, how, how much percentage of current farmers are implementing these, this regenerative farming tactics and how many are using testing on a, on a yearly basis? It's a great question. I think we're under 1% that would be considered quote unquote regenerative. Um, unfortunately, but there are a lot of farmers who are going into no-till and cover cropping. It's really sweeping the nation. The problem with it is a majority of them for cover crop killing off their cover crop are still using glyphosate. And now there's, there's things that are being developed and built for them to do crimping so they don't have to do uh, as much glyphosate spraying because glyphosate's terrible and killing people. Um, but I don't know the percentages, but rapidly increasing our cover crop and no-till are really going up exponentially right now. And uh, we don't know the numbers per se, but yeah, it's catching on. But I wouldn't say that people would be considered regenerative until they're actually building soil back and building a function yet back in. What are the opportunity costs associated with, if I'm a farmer and I hear this podcast and I'm blown away by this cover cropping idea and I want to go all in on it, you know, what are the opportunity costs or negatives that one would have to think about when beginning to implement this type of farming? Is it costs? Is it uh, just a learning curve or materials or tools? We highly recommend that, and we're developing an online 101 for regenerative farming with the lead, what we consider the best regenerative farmer trainers uh, called the Soil Health Academy, which you can check out right now. And you can get scholarships through Kiss the Ground starting this March uh, for full scholarships for a three-year program for farmer training, which includes soil testing on year one and year three. So a farmer would be able to say, okay, I want to apply for the scholarship. I don't have the funds to pay for this myself for this three-year program to transition with the testing plus the, plus the, um, the courses that the Soil Health Academy teaches and ongoing training from them. And then we're going to be moving that 101 soil, uh, 101, regenerative agriculture 101 course to an online platform, which anyone can be able to access and go through a three-year training program. Uh, that being said, why I'm mentioning that is to confidently transition. It is not just a mind shift of, oh, that, that makes a bunch of sense. Having the support system, having the, the environment and the community around to support you, and then having experts who can, who can guide you along and, and be there for you is essential. We, part of the reason we developed our program the way it was, was the drop-off rate of people who hear about this at a conference and then go back to their community and don't have a lot of support in their community are kind of up against their parents or their family. And they're just like, whatever, I'm just going to go back to, to the old ways, even if they were super inspired. So we're really looking at how, how can we be much more significant in the transition? So to answer your question more particularly, um, sometimes equipment is an issue. So for example, uh, if you have heavy tillage equipment and you're trying to go no-till, um, some people are trading in their tractors for, for no-till drills. Um, we are looking at government grants to be able to be available to help those people who want to switch over do that better. Cover crop mixes, if you take any soil health course from a, a good professional, those should pay for themselves pretty significantly if you're willing to do the testing, like I said. Uh, if you did your cover crops in the winter and you're able to know like 
wow, I actually don't need as much uh, the next year in input cost. Um, there's a great quote I have from a guy I can pull up here. Um, uh, it says, in our second year, we saved over $200,000 by reducing input costs such as seed, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and fertilizer, as well as reducing labor and fuel costs. We had also re reduced glyphosate consumption by 80% and were glyphosate-free by year three. So this is someone who took a training from the gentleman I talked to you about with the Soil Health Academy, and those were his results by, like I said, by second year. Um, pretty astonishing what can happen when you're guided by people who are kind of the mavericks of this, uh, not just some slouch from a university who, who's never done it, but the, the folks who've done it and teach it, who are the most sought after trainers, you can have like amazing, amazing results because you're getting the, it's not a one size fits all ever, but you're able to, to look at your farm and start the process and have significant savings within the first three years for sure. So, Taking all this into a, into consideration, how much would this impact, say, climate change and global warming on on a act like on an aggregate basis? If we had fifty percent of farms around the world implement this type of farming, what would that do for? What would be the ripple effects of that on the environment and and on the globe? Huge, astronomically huge. So let's just jump back to the beginning of this conversation. Climate. What does that mean? First of all. Second of all, if it just means CO2 in the atmosphere, if we're not pumping it in, it's going out. So if we leave this bare, all that bare ground's actually consuming CO2 is going up. Organisms are consuming the remaining carbon in there and it's turning back into CO2. This reverses it. This is a net carbon gain if we have plants covering the land, right? So when we look at um, you know, the, the 4P1000, which is an initiative that France came up for the, the UN COP21 event, they're basically saying that if 0.4% soil organic matter increases happened on the world's agricultural soils, we would negate all current emission levels by far. Done. Um, and uh, I mentioned Dr. Alan Williams. If, do you mind if I share a screen really quick? Yeah. This is the first ever shared screen on the Len Jones Party of Two podcast. So if you guys are listening to not on YouTube, definitely check out the YouTube video to get a better understanding here. What's up, party people? This is a quick Len Jones break to announce the winner of this week's $50 gift certificate. Congratulations to Joe Glacken for being our winner. Please shoot me a direct message to collect your prize. As a reminder, each podcast episode, we will be giving out $50 to a random listener who shares this podcast episode on their Instagram story. Remember to tag me on Instagram at Len Jones so I can reshare your post and celebrate you on my timeline. Now, let's jump back into this podcast with Finian. Cool. So this is just a, an example of an existing farm. This is talking about economics. So we have ecosystem carrying capacity and time in production here, right? So this is your curve in a degenerate model. Every year, you can hold less animals on the land. So that means you're making less money because your input costs go up to feed your cattle because you have less feed on the land. Here's the sustainable model where you have land and you have cows on it and you're trying to do your best and the, and the, the model of the money goes the same, input costs stay the same. Now, I want you to notice something here, Ian. This is what I'm going to get to in a second. Look at these cows, right? Mm -hmm. What do you notice under the cows? Uh, I don't know if that's poop or hay or, or... It's really a simple, weird question, but they're shadows. Okay. You notice that you can see their shadows? Yeah. What, is, what do you think that means about the grass height? It's, uh, it's high. It's short. Sorry, yeah. trick question. But 
you're not going to get shadows if you have super high grass up to their shoulders, right? Okay. But when we're looking at this now, we're saying this is a neighbor right across the street from Dr. Alan Williams farm. So this is a 5,000 acre ranch as well. And the cows are able to do whatever they want. So they just go out and graze and they're grazing all day, literally heads down the entire day in Picasso, as I mentioned. So this is Dr. Alan Williams farm right across the street. Three and a half years ago, now I guess it's now four years ago, four years ago he got onto this land and it was 50% bare ground crop fields. Looked like desertified area, right? You can imagine 50% of the ground is uncovered, dusty crap, right? In three years, he transitioned this farm into a situation where he has three and a half times more biomass than his neighbor does because he's doing regenerative grazing with his animals, bunching them together, moving them when they need to be moved. So the fact, and people can watch a film called A Regenerative Secret that I made with Dr. Alan Williams here, and his input costs are going down every year. So every year he's able to increase his stocking density. So he's able to increase how many people he's employing, how much money he's making, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the neighbor is across the street is still going down, degrading, degrading. When it comes to, look at this biomass, right? He moved from 50% bare ground to this, and his biomass is three and a half percent more than his neighbor's is. When it comes to carbon sequestration, he's building about 0.5% to 1% soil organic matter annually. Like I mentioned with the French initiative for P1000, they're saying if 0.4% increase of soil organic matter negates all current emissions, period, right? So to answer your question, if we had 50% of farms doing at least this type of stuff, we would be in for not just a huge carbon sequestration situation, uh, you know, halfway cutting all human emissions, but also we would be dealing with the factor of when it rains here, all of that water is absorbed and retained. The, the rates, I think he was at four seconds, for infiltration rate here, um, which is amazing, which came from a depleted, degraded land. Uh, so regenerating the land's function is such a big deal because the world has dried up and turned desert at a rate of, um, sorry, I'll just jump back here so we can look at this. Um, the world has dried up and desertified uh, at a rate now of almost the size of England every year. What I mean by that is we lose what was currently in agricultural production, land that is so degraded that even chemicals can't prop it up at a rate of 30 million acres a year. England is the size of 32 million acres. So an area nearly the size of England lost every year out of production because it's too depleted and destroyed. So something gets, all land can get to the point where it's too depleted or destroyed. It can. So the question, this is the slide we're looking at now is basically saying, this is where we are. And you know, you saw this slide at the, at the exhibit in San Francisco. This is where we are. We have to regenerate. Sustaining is just insane right now, as we see with, with this, whoops, as we see with this, why would you want to sustain this? And then we're basically looking at regeneration as our only option to go here. So are these, these zones, are these the same idea of, of a dead zone in the ocean? You could, you could do that. The dead zones in the ocean are 
are from, um, you're basically having a situation where you have an overgrowth of a certain type of um, algae, an algal bloom that utilizes too much of your, uh, they, build, they build themselves up and then in their dying process, they suck out all the oxygen. So they suffocate the waterway and kill a bunch of the things that were there that needed oxygen. Because even though they're in the water, they're still oxygen breathing. Yeah. This is, a, this is a question I always like to ask anybody on the podcast. It's kind of the staple. And just looking at your background and, and the soil world and the stuff you're doing throughout your organization and the lessons you've learned in scaling it and building it. If you could go back in time, maybe to 18 years old, and you could have said to yourself one, two or three things that would have accelerated your, accelerated your learning curve, saved you a ton of time, money, heartache, whatever it may be what would you say to yourself? And obviously it can't be, I wouldn't say anything because it made me who I am today. You know, what were some of those, those lessons you, you kind of wish you could have learned earlier? I know it's a bit off topic. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I would say get clear as soon as you can on what your calling is. And what that means is pretty basically like, what do you wish for the world to experience? So my calling is that people know that they can change the world. That's my calling. So finding that out really sharpens the ability for your life to go down that route of fulfilling that. And it can fulfill it in many different ways, but knowing what your calling is and feeling connected to it really helps you filter out the BS that isn't serving you and that mission uh, of fulfilling that for people in the world. Um, then the other thing is someone who was able to coach me on not having to play small and scarcity. Uh, so having the support to not finding people who could support you and not playing in a scarcity mode, meaning like, Oh, how can we do this with $10 versus like, this is going to cost $10,000 to do and to do it right. And to do it. So it serves the world. So that kind of, those are two things that come to mind. Uh, and the third thing probably would be is, uh, health, recognizing how much your own physical health uh, can help being able to, to reach your highest potential uh, and how much the food we eat, the things we consume. This Uber driver gave me this little saying, like, do yourself a favor, do yourself a favor. Like instead of the stuff that you think is like a treat, do the stuff that's actually going to give you a favor in terms of your energy and how you feel because maximizing our impact on the world, we need our energy and we need our health. And that's what I, that's, that's been probably the most recent uh, lesson for me that I wish I had been aware of, of like, you know, well, you're only going to be as good as you're, you're able to be based on your, your cognitive and, and body feeling because otherwise you're going to be stuck in. That's one of those lines I'm always going to remember. Do yourself a favor. What a powerful four words. Yeah. <laughs> um, Finian, I know you got to get going. So First of all, this has been amazing. I can't wait to spend more time with you and learn and, and how we can support your organization and, and just the, what you guys are doing is incredible. This has just been such an educational lesson. And for anyone that is interested in understanding more about this, I know you guys have courses and when you mm -hmm. go deep into this, can you share a little bit about where, how people can continue to follow your mission and if they want to get involved, how, how they can do that? Yeah, the best thing to do would be to go to kisstheground.com, not .org, and first start Find Your Path. We have a tool right at the top. It's just get involved, find your path. It's easy for people to, to get into it and start to see what is recommended for them. So our courses are currently happening right now. Um, so those are a little bit late to sign up to but the next ones in the spring are coming. And then we have a business course coming uh, earlier this spring. 
Uh, and then we have, you know, ability to help sponsor farmland programs. So if someone out there has financial capacity saying, hey, I'm sick and tired of investing in sustainability, I want to invest in regeneration, you can actually sponsor and help farmers get uh, funding so that they can get these scholarships and get on their way on this three-year training programs. Um, so go to kissetheground.com, become a member so that you can get connected with us, get on our, our monthly webinars and stay up to date. Um, and then, like I said, do the find your path tool, uh, which is that first thing to click on the homepage and you'll be able to get specific recommendations that are catered to your taste and what you want to do in the world. There it is. Finny and make peace. The last theme says it all. We appreciate you having on the show. Thanks Ian. really appreciate you doing this. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Len Jones party of two. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and subscribe to stay up to date on our new episodes. And remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time, peace.